This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we'll learn why efforts to vaccinate Colorado's Hispanic and Latino residents are ramping up. We'll also hear from a woman who recently broke a North American ski mountaineering record. I would close my eyes for like a minute and then all of a sudden I would stumble a little bit on my skis and be like, oh, dang it. And we'll talk with the head of a new marijuana industry mentoring program. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. There's a stubborn issue that's hurting Colorado's COVID-19 vaccine rollout. Hispanic and Latino residents are still significantly underrepresented, even though the shots are now widely available to everyone over the age of 16. KUNC's Matt Bloom has more on what's behind the gap and what's being done to close it. On a recent Saturday morning, the local Boys and Girls Club in Fort Collins hosted a very festive vaccine clinic in its gymnasium. A mariachi band serenaded patients while volunteers served homemade churros and horchata. Jesus Castro was one of the organizers. You know, it's been a hard year, so we wanted to make something nice, something like, it's like a reunion. While UC Health supplied the vaccines, Castro's group Fuerza Latina did most of the registration over the phone and online, and almost 600 people showed up. That community was like self-organizing without knowing that. They were, someone got, you know, like an appointment for that vaccine, and then they were telling their neighbors, they were telling their families. So it was like this beautiful thing of activism. However, the latest numbers show just under 10% of Colorado's vaccines are going to Latino residents, while they make up over 20% of the population. And by some estimates, they also account for over 40% of all COVID cases. What the state has done and what community organizations and local public health leadership have done is is remarkable in, in the focus that we've had. Uh, but it it's still not enough. Dr. Ozzy Granardo is chief diversity officer at Centura Health and a co-chair of the Colorado Vaccine Equity Task Force. He feels the state is playing catch-up when it comes to equity. The issue was that because we didn't lead with equity, um, we're in this position now. And that continual catch-up position um, is incredibly hard to to come back from. Surveys show there's still hesitancy in the Latino community to getting vaccinated, but that's also true across all demographic groups. Granardo says specific reasons range from hitting language barriers when trying to make an appointment to not being able to get time off from work. And so now we've got to figure out for those people who are remaining who um, have not received the vaccine, what is going to switch them over to wanting the vaccine? Is it a message? Is it the messenger? Is it the timing? Is it the availability of the vaccine for them? In Larimer County, the local health department has started using census data to open up more pop-up clinics in neighborhoods with predominantly Latino residents. The one at the North Astalon Community Center in Fort Collins is located near lots of businesses in bustling Old Town, so people can stop by after work. There's also a public transit route nearby for easy access. Victor Acevedo is a 52-year-old construction worker. He didn't know vaccines were available until a family friend told him and his wife about the clinic. His friend helped them sign up online, and he came by on his day off. 
Olga Friday, who helped lead registration, says picking this site resulted in a higher percentage of Latino patients than previous county-run clinics. You know, once people knew we were there, they were calling, you know, people, and, then, and that's happened several times, that once we, we know that they're in a place where they know that they can go to, yes, then they start coming. But to get them there is sometimes the, the hard part. Hola, buenos días. 95.9. Back at the Boys and Girls Club, 16-year-old Lila Ramos is helping check people in, even though she isn't sure if she wants a vaccine herself. Yeah, I haven't decided yet. She's worried about the shot hurting and the potential side effects, but her family has been encouraging her. They're like, oh, hey, you should go get it. Um, you know, it won't hurt. Like, you won't feel sick. You're fine. It'll be okay. Come on, you could do it. And I'm like, okay. You know, all nervous. She's planning to let her sister go first and then decide. Jesus Castro feels like it's up to community organizers like himself to be there for people like Ramos. We knew that we had to push for our community to get vaccinated. Because it seems like the immigrant community is always, or the Latinx community, it's always last in everything. No one thinks of us, we are not no one's priority, and we have to make it happen for ourselves. And he says the health of the community depends on it. If the disparities aren't reduced, experts worry Latinos could continue to suffer from COVID at disproportionate rates in the future. Matt Bloom, KUNC. Colorado's cannabis industry is among the fastest-growing businesses in the state. Since the recreational market opened up in 2014, medical and retail sales have topped $10 billion. But the prosperity doesn't benefit everyone. State data shows that the majority of medical and recreational cannabis business owners are white men. Governor Polis signed a bill last year that created a social equity license program, opening the door for more people to own and operate an independent cannabis business. And in conjunction with this effort, the state's largest marijuana trade organization is launching their own mentorship program pairing folks looking to start their business with executives already rooted in the industry. Truman Bradley is the executive director of the Marijuana Industry Group, and he's with us now to tell us more about how the mentorship program will work. Truman, welcome to Colorado Edition. Great to be here. Let's start with just a reminder about the social equity bill. What does it do? So there were two social equity bills. The first was a definition of social equity, which then allowed local governments, as well as the Marijuana Enforcement Division to create programs to help people who qualify as social equity applicants. And we've seen that at the state level, as well as in Denver and in Aurora, as they look to bring in people who uh, have been negatively impacted by the war on drugs or, you know, were in economically disadvantaged areas, that sort of thing. And the governor also recently signed the Program to Support Marijuana Entrepreneurs Bill. Tell us about that and how it fits into all of this. So this bill does a few things. It creates a position in state government specifically to help social equity cannabis entrepreneurs navigate both the licensing and the business side of cannabis entrepreneurship. It also carves out $4 million from the state's marijuana cash tax fund for low interest, no interest loans to help social equity entrepreneurs launch their business. A lot of industries have been talking about DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion. As we mentioned, uh, this is something that hasn't really been the case in the marijuana industry. Why is this important to the industry? 
Diversity in the Colorado cannabis industry is vital to innovation, overall industry success. And what's unique to marijuana is you can't talk about the legal cannabis landscape without talking about the devastation that the war on drugs caused for communities of color specifically, as well as just overall Americans. Those two things are tied together, and it shouldn't be the case that people who look like me are making millions of dollars and people who don't look like me are still in jail. That's a wrong that needs to be righted, and it's incumbent upon all of us, industry, government, voters, and everyone else to right that wrong. Tell us about this new mentorship program. Who is it for? What are the goals? Mentorship is something that is a relationship that can help entrepreneurs, and there are benefits for for the mentors as well. There are industry experts here, cannabis executives, that have forgotten more about the marijuana business than most people will ever know, and it's an opportunity to give back to the social equity entrepreneurs who are launching their business now. And that's a partnership that I am really, really excited about. Why is a mentorship program like this so important in the cannabis industry? Starting any business is difficult, but starting a business in a highly regulated environment in a mature industry is especially hard. And the cannabis executives that are part of MIG in their respective companies are true leaders and can help impart those, those bits of knowledge, those guidance. Personally, I've made seven-figure mistakes uh, in my business career, and it would be great if the people that are starting out, the social equity entrepreneurs, don't have to make those mistakes. And mentors can just help introduce their mentees to the larger industry, You know, make connections, make those introductions, whether it's a staffing firm, whether it's somebody who may have access to capital, whether it's a compliance expert, you know, all the different areas that are going to need to be uh, dealt with as social equity entrepreneurs start their business. I want to ask about a, a, a focus on a kind of newer segment of the industry, and that is cannabis delivery. Can you talk about why getting into delivery might make sense for someone who's new to the industry as opposed to, you know, opening up a dispensary or something? Great question. So delivery is one of the newer license types that we're seeing along with cannabis hospitality or social consumption. And unlike some of the more traditional licenses, such as cultivation, brick and mortar retail, or manufacturing that have been around for a long time, these are new license types. And so you don't have mature companies in the space. It's more of a greenfield, so to speak. And so that's a nice opportunity, a little bit more of a level playing field for entrepreneurs to start out. I think that those license types pair really well in conjunction with the mentorship program because delivery is part of the supply chain. Delivery companies can't grow their own. And so those partnerships are going to need to happen. Well, have you already begun accepting applications for the mentorship program? And if so, I'm wondering who you have seen apply so far. Yes, we did some public outreach through the city of Denver and we've seen quite a bit of interest and the applicants on the mentee side really run the gamut from 
I would say social equity entrepreneurs that have an established business plan and are just looking to take their business to the next level, all the way to people who have been thinking about the industry, but aren't really sure if it's right for them. They maybe don't have the financial acumen that some of the people I just mentioned have and everyone in between. So it's a really exciting thing to be able to sit down and go through the applications. It's really cool to see. I'm excited about this program. Truman Bradley is the executive director of the Marijuana Industry Group. Their social equity mentorship program begins this Friday. You'll find more information at our website, KUNC.org. Truman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. One of the Biden administration's two recent economic proposals, the American Families Plan, would open up higher education opportunities for millions of Americans by investing in childcare, pre-kindergarten, and community college. The plan would award states $109 billion to cover the first two years of community college. That would also include undocumented students who are brought to the U.S. as children. And there's reason to think it could prove an effective investment based on what's happening in Tennessee, which has offered free two-year community college since 2011. Jason Gonzalez covers higher education for Chalkbeat, Colorado. And he's with us now to talk about the opportunities and challenges that President Biden's plan would present for Colorado. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start off with uh, some of the plan. What does it entail in general? And then tell us about the free community college part. Yeah, like you said, it would provide $109 billion for free college. Uh, that would open up the door to a free two-year college education um, that's free of tuition and fees for millions of Americans. The details of how that money, since this is still in the plan phase, would be spread around are really unclear. Every state has its own community college system, like in Colorado, and each state has different tuition rates. This has been done in other states. Tennessee has offered two years of free community college since 2011. What results have they seen? Has this had the effect that that they might have been looking for? In some ways, yes. In other ways, it's really uncovered um, some inequities that they didn't initially expect. I mean, graduation rates increased along with the number of students going to college, but they also saw a lot of students who were not finishing, many of those who are low-income students. Free doesn't mean that you're going to guarantee success, and part of that is because low-income students especially face a lot of food and housing insecurities. One of the stories that always sticks with me from Tennessee was at Nashville State Community College. The administrators there talked about uh, students actually going to the donation bin um, and pulling the food from the donation bin so they could have food to eat. Um, so even though the college was free, they still had other needs that, that needed to be fulfilled. And, you know, one of those was food. Clearly, the tuition cost is not the only hurdle that students face in this whole process. Does President Biden's proposal address any of these more deep-seated inequities or challenges? 
It does. And so two things that will happen under this plan is $62 billion to look at ways to boost completion or retention rates at the community colleges so they can serve disadvantaged uh, students and, and their communities. And there's also $80 billion in Pell Grants, which would provide college aid for low-income students. It can help cover the cost of fees. It can cover the cost of tuition. It's really a flexible source of money for those students. And in Colorado, as in most other states, I think almost every other state, Pell Grant would pay for the full cost of tuition at a community college. We know the pandemic had an impact on enrollment in higher education, and for sure for community colleges too. Is there any additional help available because of the pandemic? The last few stimulus plans have provided money for students who are facing some economic insecurity, and those are have been dished out through the schools, the, the money was actually provided directly to the schools and then sent out to students. You'd have to have a, a federal aid form, the FAFSA already completed. So the big thing about that is many students didn't have the FAFSA completed. So those students who didn't missed out on that money. Um, but there were also other college aid grant programs through the stimulus programs that uh, were able to help students access college during this time, go back for retraining. And some of those are still going on now. Well, lastly, Jason, I'm just curious, why does this plan focus on community college? This plan is really twofold. It would provide um, money for universal pre-K for all three and four-year-olds. So that's that's education early. And it also provides it on the other end of high school for the community colleges. And when you look at the community college enrollment, most of the students enrolled in higher education are at community colleges. And most of those students are going for really specific skilled labor jobs. And the Biden administration really cited that 70% of jobs um, will be held by by people that have more than a high, high school degree. So this, this plan is focusing on that two-year because this would free up additional money just generally for students to be able to complete and get better jobs into the future. Jason Gonzalez covers higher education for Chalkbeat Colorado. You'll find a link to his reporting on this at our website, KUNC.org. Jason, thanks so much for uh, reporting on this. Thank you so much for having me. A 19-year-old Summit County ski mountaineer recently broke a North American record for the most vertical feet climbed in 24 hours. On April 27th, Grace Staberg climbed more than 56,000 feet at Copper Mountain near Frisco. She skied up and down the mountain more than 21 times. Colorado Edition's Tess Novotny recently spoke with Grace about her record and where her sights are set next. For those of us who might be a little bit lost, she started by explaining what ski mountaineering is. It's pretty much the equivalent of backcountry touring, but racing, you put skins on your skis, uh, normally mohair skins, and then you can ascend, and then you'll rip your skins off and you descend. So it allows you to climb mountains and ski down, and then skimo racing is essentially the same, but just with speed speed in mind. And do you also do skimo racing? Yep, I'm primarily a racer, actually. I haven't done any big big objectives that would be like skiing, I don't know, Denali or K2 or something like that. I I tend to race more. How did you first get involved with ski mountaineering? 
I first got into it through running. I, I love running in the summer and I love endurance sports. And I was looking for uh, something in skiing that would allow me to combine that with my love of love of downhill skiing and Schemo offered a great option. I really like that it has kind of the endurance part of, of Nordic skiing, but it also allows you to explore the mountains and get a bit further afield. So that's kind of how I got into it. I was a runner first and then it offered a, a great option of something similar to do in the winter. Right. Kind of like another step up, it sounds like. So at 9 a.m. on Tuesday, April 27th, you begin your first of more than 21 ascents up Mount Copper. What was motivating you to attempt this feat? I had been over in Europe all winter racing the World Cups, and I think I just really wanted something that would allow me to kind of bring the community together in Summit County since I had been away all year. And I also think I was looking for a bit more of a more of a challenge because I love the World Cup races. They're short and super fast and really challenging technically, but I was looking for something, I think, a bit longer. So the 24-hour record was a great opportunity to, to get both of those things. Yeah. And I understand you skied up and down the mountain for a full 24 hours until the next day on Wednesday morning. How did you keep your like physical and mental energy up during that time? I would say the biggest thing mentally was having people there to pace me. I had a lot of great friends and training partners come out and pace me. So they all kept the the energy really high and they would talk at me in the middle of the night to keep me awake or tell me stories or whatever it took to keep me energized. So that was really helpful. And then physically just making sure that I like ate and was drinking every hour, I think was probably, probably the biggest thing. And then as long as I was was fueled the whole time. It wasn't wasn't an issue. Yeah. Did you ever get close to like falling asleep on your skis? I feel like I can't even stay up for 24 hours not doing something that physically intense. I actually, people had warned me about like the 2 or 3 a.m. hour, but I'm generally up around 3 anyways. So the morning I didn't think was all that difficult, but I had a really tough time around like 10 p.m., 11 p.m. on Monday Monday night and I was definitely starting to doze off a little bit and yeah I would close my eyes for like a minute and then all of a sudden I would stumble a little bit on my skis and be like oh dang it I was I was starting to fall asleep (laughs) yeah and and you mentioned that you were just trying to make sure you were like eating and staying fueled throughout that time how did you eat while you were actively skiing up and downhill yeah so every lap at the at the bottom we would ski in and the people who were there to crew for me would hand hand me a few different types of food. So I had a lot of gels and I also had drink mix in my water bottles. So both of those were really easy to get down while I was skiing. And then at the bottom of each lap, I would normally try and like take a few bites of some kind of real food, like just in the few moments where I wasn't, wasn't moving. When it was all over after 24 hours, what was going through your mind? I think at the beginning, I was mostly just relieved to be done because I was so tired and I had been going for so long. But um, then in the next next few hours, it definitely kind of started to hit me. Well, like how much just, yeah, how much I had skied. And I think then the biggest thing was just that I was really overwhelmed with gratitude and yeah, just so thankful for all of the people who came out to help and all of the people who had supported me in it. Yeah, I think it was it was a really powerful thing to see. 
And I understand that it's pretty rare for an American to be such an accomplished ski mountaineer. The sport is much more popular and developed in European countries, but you have like really exploded onto the scene in the last few years. You made six podiums and 19 European races this season, including two first place finishes. What do you want other American athletes to take away from your success in this sport? I guess I just hope that it encourages other Americans to to give it their best shot and to try competing in Europe um, because by all means it's possible. I think I was really encouraged by the the Americans I had seen going over to Europe and doing well. Like currently, like John Gaston and Cam Smith are two of the guys who tend to do fairly well in Europe, but there are also a lot of women like Nina Silich who have done really well in the past. Uh, Nina raced a while back, but she she won World Cups when she was racing over there. So I hope that I can contribute even, even just a little bit as much as they have in helping encourage other young athletes from here to, to shoot for their, their racing goals, even if they might seem a little unlikely. Breaking a North American record at 19 is already such a major accomplishment. What are your goals going forward? I think eventually I would love to to try this record again, but that's probably a few years off. My more immediate goals are on the, the World Cup circuit. I would love to win more World Cups and shoot for the, the overall World Cup title. So that's what I'll be focusing on, on right now. I race as a trail runner in the summer, but it's generally in preparation for the winter. So my World Cup goals are definitely at the, the forefront right now. Grace Dayberg is a professional athlete, ski mountaineer, ultra runner, and student. Thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me. That's our show for today. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.